The text for our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." At this time, I'd like to call our kids forward. Well, this morning, I want to especially explain the last two sentences of the verses that we just read. In fact, I'm going to read them again. Listen carefully. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now these words teach us some very wonderful things about Jesus. First of all, they teach us that he truly became like us. When you think about Jesus, you probably think about him walking around the country, preaching God's word, and healing people who were sick. In other words, you think of Jesus as a grown-up. And of course, all of his work as Savior was done as a grown-up, but he didn't come into this world as a grown-up. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth. He was born as a baby. And our verses say that he was made like unto his brethren. That means that he was made like us. Jesus was born a little baby. Before he was born, he lived in his mommy's tummy for nine months. And just like you did. After he was born, he drank milk, he crawled, he learned to walk and talk just like you. So you see, you're not too young to follow Jesus and you're not too little for Jesus to understand you because he was once a baby, he was once a crawling toddler, a five-year-old, a sixth grader, a teenager, a young adult, and a full-grown adult man. Jesus understands what life is like at every age because he experienced every age. The second thing that our verses teach us is that Jesus is our true priest. A priest is someone who stands between you and God because you can't come to God because you are a sinner. In the Old Testament, the priests would kill little lambs for the sins of God's people so that they could live and be forgiven. This taught them that sin was the cause of death. And unless someone else could die for their sins, they would have to pay, and no one can pay for sin because it really is so very bad. Even when you offered a lamb for sins, you still had to keep offering lambs over and over and over again because an animal can't take the place of a person. 
But you see, those priests in the Old Testament, they were really just pictures of what Jesus would do. He was both the priest and the Lamb. And He came between His sinful children and God. And He offered Himself for our sins. That means that no other sacrifice will ever be needed. If you are a child of God, all of your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet, have been paid for by Jesus' death. Our verses tell us that Jesus is a faithful high priest. That means that He did His work properly. So we can be confident that none of our sins have accidentally not been paid for. Jesus took the punishment for all the sins of all of God's children. The third thing that these verses teach us is that because Jesus lived on this earth as one of us, He is a merciful priest. Remember we just said a few minutes ago that Jesus knows what it's like to be a baby and a little child. That's a very helpful thing to know. You see, you may feel like God is just for grown-ups. And so when you feel the sin in your heart urging you to disobey dad and mom, to fight with your brothers and sisters, you may feel like you're on your own. But our verses teach us that Jesus became like us. He knows what it's like to be a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. So when you feel the urge to do things that you know that you were wrong, you can ask Jesus for help and you can be sure that He will help you because first of all, He knows what it's like to be your age and secondly, He became like us in order to be our priest. So if we do sin, we know that He will forgive us because He has already paid for our sins with His death. And we know that He won't say, why are you so stupid? Why do you keep doing that? Because He was once a little child and He had to suffer all the hardships of life as a child. We're going to pray and then you can return to your seats. O oh, Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our outline this morning is as follows. Number one, the incarnation. Number two, the suffering. And number three, the compassion. Our outline reflects something of, about the whole epistle. It's what's called in logic an argument a fortiori, or an argument from the greater to the lesser. In order that the reader doesn't struggle with doubts about lesser points later in the epistle, right off the bat, Paul slaps down the biggest, baddest, heaviest arguments possible for the superiority of Christ. Another such example of this kind of an argument can be found in Romans 8, verses 32 through 35, which begins by saying, he who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? And it ends with saying, who shall separate us from the love of God? 
You see, if we were told that nothing can separate us from God's love, we might be inclined to doubt it, especially if we ever get a fair glimpse of the darkness of our own hearts. If we were told about the inevitability of tribulation, persecution, peril, or sword, we might doubt God's love for us. When we hear about death and principalities and powers and things present or things to come, we might despair of remaining in the love of God. So Paul starts with the greatest thing there is. God gave His Son for us. And if He did that, how would He not also give us the lesser things? So in our text, the ultimate question is, how can one be certain of God's mercy? And the answer is, Jesus is our high priest. Okay, how is that an answer? Well, the argument that Paul uses is this. Jesus is greater than all of the instruments and messengers of God in the Old Testament. He is greater than any heavenly messenger, greater than any prophet, greater than any king, priest, altar, or sacrifice. He is greater because He is the Son. He is the eternally generated Son, one with the Father in essence, co-equal with the Father in glory. And this Jesus is our High Priest. Now, unless you're utterly blind to all spiritual truth, you cannot read the Old Testament and not see the grace of God in it. I mean, what did Adam and Eve do to deserve forgiveness and the Gospel promise of the seed of the woman? What did Abraham ever do to deserve covenant friendship with God? What did scheming Jacob ever do to deserve God's love more than Esau that God could say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated? What did Israel ever do to to deserve deliverance from slavery in Egypt and the guiding presence of Christ for 40 years in the wilderness? You get the point. The history of the Old Testament church is nothing but a chronicle of God's grace, particular unmerited saving favor. Grace isn't grace if Esau receives it as much as Jacob. Grace isn't grace if it is earned. Grace isn't grace if the recipients still perish in their sins. And so our first point then is the incarnation. Paul opens with an argument about the greatest display of God's grace. The death of Jesus. And so our text describes the Incarnation. And what is specifically pointed out to us is that God did not work redemption for any other being than man. And this can be seen by the fact that God became man in Jesus. How else could He atone for us except He became a man like us? Our catechism teaches us that no other nature can satisfy for the sins man has committed. And that's why the Old Testament sacrifices were merely promissory notes. God accepted them because He knew what they stood proxy for and He knew what Christ would do in the fullness of time. Our text tells us that Christ did not take on the nature of angels, but our nature. We are flesh and blood creatures and Christ shared in our nature. Now this is a very important truth, one which, while frequently overlooked, has massive implications. Look, if Jesus was not a true man comprised of a human body and a true human reasonable soul like you and I have, then He could not save us. And He couldn't save us because He wouldn't have been one of us. How is it that all men come into the world as sinners? Well, it's because we are all descended, body and soul, from Adam. 
Adam is our biological head, but he is also our covenant head. He stood for us all, and we all stood in him when he sinned against God in the garden. The Bible teaches that explicitly. In similar manner, Christ is the covenant head of all whom he represents in the covenant of grace. Covenant representation requires identity of nature. If Christ were anything other than a true human man with a true human nature, he could not represent us and therefore could not save us. So I trust you can see, at least in part, why what may seem like theological hair-splitting can actually be very important. Let's take a quick example. In the second century, there was a heretic named Valentinus who denied that the physical material of Jesus' body derived from Mary. He said that Mary was, she was like a pipe or a, a conduit or a channel through whom Jesus passed. Jesus, his physical body, he said, was a, some kind of heavenly flesh that he brought down with him out of heaven. Now the church unilaterally rejected this as a damnable heresy. About 1,400 years later, Menno Simmons resurrected this heresy. Now at heart, the rationale was the same. Neither Valentinus nor Simmons could understand that the virgin birth protected Jesus from incurring original sin. Jesus was born outside the covenant with Adam, and that was demonstrated by the fact that he had no human father, which is why he was called the seed of the woman. And therefore, his human nature was sanctified from the moment of conception. In other words, it was never at risk of incurring or contracting original sin. Now you may ask, well, what's the big deal though? Well, let's cut right to the chase. Did God or did God not promise that the Messiah would be born as the seed of Abraham? That the Messiah would be the seed of Isaac? that the Messiah would be the seed of Jacob, that the Messiah would be the seed of Judah, that the Messiah would be the seed of David. If Jesus' body and soul was not derived from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and Mary, then God is a liar. And not only that, but He lied on top of a lie because if Jesus brought His flesh with Him down out of heaven, what purpose would the drama of his birth of a woman serve except to deceive mankind? Now, Rome tries to handle this issue by granting sinlessness to Mary, too. They say that the only way he could derive the physical material of his body untainted by sin was if his mother were sinless. And so Rome declares that Mary was conceived without sin. But that solution is like trying to explain the movement of a train by adding more cars. The train doesn't move without an engine. If Jesus needed a sinless mom to be born sinless, then surely Mary needed a sinless mom, and surely she needed one too ad infinitum. And if you push that chain of reasoning as far as it'll go, you have no choice but to say that Eve was without sin. And if she were without sin, how do you explain Cain? How do you explain you? Again, what may strike the casual observer as obtuse or egg-headed theological discussions turns out to be extremely important. And you'll notice, over and over again in our text, we find it said that the only reason that Jesus can save us is because He took our nature. So, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, our text says, are one. His work is to bring many sons to glory. 
Those whom He redeems are called His brethren and His children. You see, these are terms that require identity of nature. And if this weren't clear enough, we're told that there's no salvation for angels because Christ didn't assume their nature. Lord's Day 5 and 6 of our catechism treat this truth with surgical precision. I think it'll be worth reading six of the eight questions and answers. Question 14, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? Answer, none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Question, what sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Question, why must he be very man and perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question, why must he in one person be also very God? Answer, that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Question, who is that mediator who is in one person, both very God and a real righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is of God, made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the final question, whence knowest thou this? Answer from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterward published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten son. Now I trust that you can see how unassailable that logic is. And it's saying the exact same thing that our text does. The reason that Jesus can sanctify us, that is, save us from sin, is because He became one of us. And He became one of us so much so that He can literally call us His brethren or His children. Now the two passages that Paul quotes to show this, the first one is Psalm 22, verse 22, where Christ, after triumphing over death, says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And the other passage, which we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, where Christ says, And I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And that brings us to our second point, the suffering. Now, there's a very important thing that we have to state about the sufferings of Christ, and that we noted this in our series on Isaiah 53, that they were entirely just. But what is, what, what is Pastor getting at? Well, what I'm getting at is that everything that Jesus suffered for our sins was entirely just and fair punishment for those sins. Jesus suffered what you deserve. Jesus didn't bear a single scratch beyond what was absolutely fair and just punishment for your sins. Let's briefly catalog the sufferings of Jesus. First of all, he grew up in a sinful household. Now that may startle you at first glance, but neither Mary, Joseph, nor any of their children were sinless. 
Jesus spent his infancy, childhood, and adolescence in a house full of sinners. You remember when Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows? Well, you can imagine why. Every single person he interacted with from the moment of his conception was a sinner. On top of that, Jesus was not born into privilege. He grew up under a cloud of suspicion. Nazareth was a small town. Everyone knew Joseph and Mary weren't married when Mary turned up pregnant. How many people do you think believed her story about the angel Gabriel telling her that she conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost? When quote-unquote Christendom is full of people who disbelieve the virgin birth, what do you think enemies of the faith believe? Jesus lived in the home of a carpenter. A carpenter in the first century was about as low as you could go on the societal ladder. Let's just say no kid from Nazareth ever bragged that his dad was a carpenter. This meant that Jesus grew up in abject poverty. Carpenters didn't belong to a woodworker's union that could demand high salaries for their work. They were the lowest of the low in a society where menial laborers had zero clout or influence. Jesus had to suffer the frustration of knowing what he was capable of doing, but because of his covenant engagements, could not do. From the moment the child Jesus had any self-awareness, he knew who he was and why he was in the world. We actually get a glimpse of this when he was 12 years old. You'll recall that Joseph and Mary began walking home to Nazareth from Jerusalem, assuming that Jesus was with some relatives in the caravan of travelers. After some time, they realized that he was not there, and they rushed back to Jerusalem, frantically combing the city, trying to find him. When they found him, he was in the temple, talking with the elderly ministers, amazing them with his wisdom. And Mary attempted to scold him, and he replied, Why did you seek me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? This tells us that Jesus spoke often enough about his work that he could legitimately express amazement that Mary and Joseph would have thought that he would be anywhere but the temple. Do you realize that Jesus went home to Nazareth and lived in absolute obscurity for another 18 years? All the while knowing that he was the promised Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. This obscurity was so absolute that even Mary appears to have forgotten who he was. The Gospels tell us that his half-brothers, that is the sons of Joseph and Mary, did not believe in him until after his resurrection. Is that not extremely painful suffering? Who else in the world would have had a better opportunity to see Jesus up close and personal, to, to really see him and know him but his own family, and they disbelieved? Scripture tells us on, that on one occasion, Mary came with some of his brothers to try to take him home and, and, and put him away as if he were mentally sick. After 30 years of silence, Jesus comes on the scene preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. He heals everything from epilepsy to leprosy, to edema, to fevers, to demon possession. Jesus raised three people from the dead. He taught with manifest authority, and this was acknowledged on all sides. He miraculously calmed seas, transported boats across lakes, 
pulled money from the mouth of a fish, fed thousands with a couple of loaves and a few uh, fish. And what was the reaction to this? Constant opposition and persecution. More than once, his opponents plotted to kill him. Those who followed him were excommunicated from the synagogue. And you'd think that the resurrection of Lazarus, four days after he had died, would, would have silenced even the strongest opposition because it was clearly the finger of God. But you'd be wrong. In fact, the enemies of Jesus plotted to kill Lazarus after three and a half years of suffering constant unbelief, opposition, persecution, and slander, Jesus was turned over to the civil authorities on the flimsiest of trumped-up charges. Men were bribed to testify against him, and they're, they're, they couldn't keep their stories straight. And despite the fact that the Roman governor knew that their case against Jesus didn't hold water, he still agreed to have him crucified, death by the most brutal execution known to man. First, Jesus was scourged, which tore flesh from the bone all across his back. The pain was unspeakable. To add insult to injury, they, they, the soldiers mocked him by putting a robe on him like that of a king, and then they made a crown out of large thorns and put it on his head. The thorns cut deeply into his forehead and scalp, causing intense pain and profuse bleeding. Then, once they marched him to the top of the hill, they pulled the robe off, causing great pain again because all those mangled wounds on his back had clotted up and stuck to the robe. It'd be like pulling a bandage off a freshly dressed wound, opening it back up again. He was then laid on the cross and had large spikes driven through his feet and wrists, affixing to the cross, literally by nails. Once the cross was erected, his body would have hung forward with all the weight suspended on the nails in his wrists. This would have stretched his chest so far that he couldn't breathe. And the only way to take a breath would have been to shift all the weight onto his feet and essentially stand on that nail in order to draw breath and then slump back down, throwing all the weight back onto the wrists. When we describe intense pain, sometimes we use that word excruciating. The word excruciating was coined for this very situation. It means pain of crucifixion. Jesus suffered from a combination of hypovolemic shock and asphyxiation. And on top of this inexpressible physical pain, Jesus bore the infinite wrath of God against sin. And let me tell you that the pain of God's wrath far, far outweighed the physical pain of crucifixion. Our catechism calls it hellish agony. And Jesus refused the offer of a drink of wine, which might have potentially dulled the pain a little bit. When our text says that Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect, through sufferings, it means perfect in the sense of completing a course, like a race. In order to save us, Jesus had to complete the full course of sufferings that our sins deserve. That's what it means. Now before I move on to the final point, I want to drive something home. The, point, the sufferings of Jesus were indescribable. If He had not been God and man, 
he would have not been able to endure them. Had he been anything but God, the wrath of the Father would still be burning and would continue to burn for eternity just as it does against the souls of the damned in hell. The physical sufferings of Jesus are mind-numbingly awful, but they pale in comparison to the, phys- to the spiritual sufferings. It was the spiritual sufferings that wrung from him the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus didn't cry, My God, my God, these sufferings are far worse than the crime deserves. No, my friends, go back over in your mind all that we've, every detail that we've rehearsed about the sufferings of Jesus and realize that had it been you, that punishment would be infinitely fair and you'd still be suffering for those sins. Now, think that Jesus, the eternally generated Son of God, the darling of heaven, the one whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, the one around whose throne the cherubim cry, holy, 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 this all-holy God, the creator of heaven and earth, who needs nothing from His creatures, whom no creature can serve as if to put Him in its debt, this infinitely holy God not only assumed a human nature into personal union, but came to represent hateful sinners in the covenant of grace, to fulfill the law in their place, and to die their death, the the payment for violating God's law. That's why Paul asserts Jesus' deity so many times in the first chapter of Hebrews. He wants us to realize just who it is that stood in our place at Calvary. And here's the final point. The compassion. We have a sympathetic high priest. If we can see who and what Jesus really is, if we can see, as Romans 8 puts it, that God did not spare His own Son, then we can have the greatest assurance of God's love and compassion. Christ knew what kind of sinners we were before He came in our place. He knew exactly what He would suffer. He knew from eternity what torments of body and soul He would have to endure in order to bring many sons to glory. And therefore, if that be true, then we know that we have a merciful high priest who can aid those who are tempted because He Himself has suffered. This knowledge should calm our fretting hearts. Christ knew what we were before He saved us. Guilty and wicked sinners, yet He loved us. And He knows what we are now. Weak and frail and prone to wander, yet He loves us. Jesus has many weak and sickly children in His family, many lame sheep in His flock, and yet He bears with them all, and He casts none of them away. Richard Sibbs once wrote, There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Jesus did not need to experience the miseries of this life in order to have mercy on us. But how can we doubt His compassion when He actually has come in our place, in our nature, and was subject to all the sorrows and miseries of this life in this sinful world, and He wasn't a sinner? Whatever evils may come upon us, let us always remember that nothing happens to us but what the Son of God has Himself experienced in order that He might sympathize with us. Let us never doubt that He is present with us 
as though he himself suffered with us. Look, you might take a punch for your wife or kids, but would you take a death sentence for a serial killer? Someone who, without a doubt, deserves the full weight of justice? The Bible says that God showed his love for us while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Think of the fact that the Father, the party offended by our sins, is pleased with Christ's work of redemption. God knows that we are prone to sin, and He knows that we will be prone to despair whenever our consciences are awakened by the conviction of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, He Himself is our surety in the covenant of grace. God in Christ does it all. There are heights and depths and breadths of mercy in Christ that are infinitely above the depths of our sin and misery. We should never, therefore, despair. As evil and abominable as our sins are, they are but the sins of mere men. His is the mercy of an infinite God.